Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Yeah, I, mean, I, I like Fletcher Pratt. I, I, um, I, I, well, you know, he's not that well known anymore, and uh, and it's uh, mm-hmm. nice to know you you're doing something about absolutely. him. Absolutely, we have to yeah. honor everybody who paved yeah. the way, right? Am I book yeah, writing? absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you do. <laughs> well, I think he he and Spray de Camp between them did did a, did did some great. I mean the. Monk certainly amongst my favorites, if not my, you know, my, mm-hmm. I mean, I love them. Um, yeah, great, good. Okay, well, I look forward to that. All right. Well, welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG tables. I'm Keeper Mark, and with me tonight are Keeper Bob. Hey, everybody. And Keeper Jen. Good evening. And hopefully that lovely intro gave you a clue as to what we are reading. Tonight, we are examining the singular work by Fletcher Pratt, The Blue Star. Bob, do you want to give us a little bit of a synopsis? I'll try. Lolette <laughs> <laughs> Asterhax could not escape her destiny. She was a hereditary witch in a world where witchcraft was banned by ecclesiastical and temporal powers, and any man who possessed her would then gain possession of her precious blue star and all of the powers it could bestow. Rodford Berglund was a reluctant revolutionary, a rogue who had a date with destiny. Although he lusted after a rich baron's daughter, Rodvard was ordered to seduce the witch maiden. Then all the magical powers of that strange blue jewel would be his for as long as he remained faithful to Lalette. And wow. (laughs) (laughs) Was it just me or was was it hard to identify with either of the main characters? I mean, they're anti-heroes, right? You know, both of them. You think that Lalette is going to be the the sort of more sympathetic one and in, in, in many ways she is, but she has this temper and anger problem that comes out in, you know, in, in various ways and even has this, you know, murder <laughs> because of it. Um, you know, I, I think they're, they're both positioned as humans flawed and all, but, you know, kind of caught up in these circumstances that, you know, they, they're unwilling participants in, in some ways. Well, and I, th- I think it's fair to point out <laughs> That if you're sitting down to read uh, a fantasy novel or sword and sorcery novel, this is not what you would expect. This this kind of reminds me of like the Worm or Boris and and things of that nature, where it, it's definitely you know this is this is not sword and sorcery. This is not high fantasy. 
it's it's almost philosophical fantasy in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think the, the flaws of the characters are kind of reflected of uh, Fletcher Pratt himself. I mean, this is a guy that when he was sent off to college was arrested for burglary after a whole slew of like midnight cash drawer robberies. And then to avoid him necessarily going to jail, his father had him institutionalized. So, I mean, Fletcher Pratt had a, had a very interesting bit of background. And I think perhaps the sort of people that he met in his youth are reflected in some of his writings. I mean, Lynn Carter considered this to be one of Pratt's um, more thoughtfully conceived works. So, <laughs> I would I would say it's definitely thoughtfully conceived. It, it really is. I mean, it reads more. I, I I think it reads more like a like a treatise on fantasy politics and religion. Uh, perhaps in comparison to our own, right? Than a than a fantasy novel, it's it's a thought experiment, and and I think the the introduction and epilogue reflect that with with the three characters sitting around, literally talking about a thought experiment about what a world would be like if, rather than sciences, it had advanced in something else. Um, so it it on. Um, on an intellectual and philosophical level, it's very, very interesting, but it's not the sort, you know, you are not going to be confronted with a hero with, with mighty thews hacking through his opponents with battle axes. It's, it's not that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of, you know, the high fan, you know, the fantasy novel is, is an escapist, right? You know, it's, it's very much a let's enjoy this sort of experience, but there is a very much a, a thread going through a lot of science fiction and fantasy about this kind of morality play, right? You know, trying to have an analog in a in a in a situation that you can present it where it is, you know, easier to digest or to present, you know, in a way that's not, you know, something that's that's not beating it over your head. This beats it over your head a little bit, you know, just it sort of exposes it a little bit more in terms of like what the direct is. It's like we have these philosophers that set up the story. They dream, and you know this. This obviously has clear analogs throughout the story uh, that you know that we you know this this world experience. You know, you have a lot of this sort of revolutionary concepts and machinations, and you know the they there's in like different races that are sort of like you know sort of thinly veiled you know uh, references, and then at the end it's sort of like yeah we all you know had this thing and we wonder what happened to them and oh are we real ourselves right you know that's sort of like you know odd line at the end and like i said it's sort of like a very heavy hitting way of approaching that versus sort of like a more escapist but it i think it's it's sort of on that high one of those ends of those spectrums you know for all these kind of science fiction and fantasy things certainly well and and like i said you know having having read the worm or boris i i really see parallels there and according to lynn carter pratt was a big fan of that book and I think my biggest complaint with the Wormora Boris is the intro. Um, 
and in this case, it's not in the Worm War of Boris. They they introduce a character that walks into like the 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 king's throne room on Venus at a party and is never mentioned again. And it really doesn't seem to lead to anything, nor does it even really set up the book, its location, or its plot. Where we're here, we have a similar kind of outsider introduction. But in the grand scope of things, it makes sense. It's kind of the author introducing his thought processes. And, uh, and, and there's so, a lot of sex in those thought processes. <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. This book is kind of rapey. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just a general, you know, content warning for anybody who has not read this book, who may have, you know, mm-hmm. triggers or not appreciate, you know, the that this is a, a of its time, right? I think it's very much, you know, in the kind of same condition. But there is a there is a rape scene, a day rape scene that's very early in the novel. And that is At something least I got to that point. I was like, I'm putting this book down for a while and I have to read yeah. the yeah. Well, and before we move too far off the <clears throat> prologue, uh, I actually found the prologue to be the toughest part of this entire book to digest because I don't come from a philosophy student point of view. Uh, However, I will say it drew the pretense right up front of everything being surrounded by superstition, lying, and plain ignorance. Mm -hmm. And I have to draw that parallel between that and the trying to build this world without giving any context of, okay, so she's this race. Great. What does that mean? Can can you expound on this a little, please? Otherwise, I found it fairly whimsical, or at least it was trying to be with the the magic quotient to there. I just think it's cool that that Fletcher Pratt was a gamer. Technically, he was a a naval war gamer, Mm -hmm. but I mean, he created his own naval war game. Um, they were all collected and published into a volume, Fletcher Pratt's Naval Wargaming, Wargaming with Model Ships from 1900 to 1945. I mean, you can you can buy the war game that Fletcher Pratt wrote and played. So he was he was you know of us before we were right. I mean, there was no role playing games to play, and you can uh, actually play Fletcher Pratt's Naval Game at GaryCon. They run it every year, if I recall correctly. Right? Oh, it's, do like, they? it's the big naval on the floor. Um, in the sand table room. So mm-hmm. you see those people like on the on the floor with those ships. I think that's the Fletcher Pratt. Um, I'll ha- I'll have to check that yeah. out because I mean that, that's really interesting because even in this story, the the biggest monsters at sea were actually on board the ships. So <laughs> that that could be an interesting game to play. Well, I, I just I look at it as. You know, but before there was D and D, before there was Blackmore, there was there was that period where war gamers were kind of winnowing things down to a single character and, and role playing a bit before anything was officially published. And I think Fletcher Pratt would have been right there along with him. I think he would have he would have loved that. I think he was he was totally our kind of people. Um, and it's just people going crazy thing, right? Yeah, it's just it was just it was very well. That was that was in his youth, and that was I think to keep him out of jail, right? I mean, get arrested for burglary. <laughs> yeah. He didn't have that conviction because he ended up like in in the navy and, and doing a number of other things. And he certainly traveled around a lot and did not stay where he was arrested. Um, 
But I mean, this you, you get a circle of literary friends as well, right? You know, this the same sort of like. Oh yeah. You know, he was very much part of that early science fiction fantasy, you know, group of authors that were writing for these, you know, magazines or pulp magazines and then trying to get their own works published. And I, I know that there was a lot of references, you know, in, in articles you read about him of, you know, just how, you know, he, he, like people would be in and out of his house, right? You know, and, and just sort of exchanging ideas. And that, that obviously led to a lot of the sort of like role playing game elements that, you know, later would come. So. Well, also, I mean, if you if you've read any Asimov and you're familiar with, uh, I think it's the, is it the Black Widow Society. He's he's got a society named named for uh, named for spiders, mm-hmm. and that's actually based on the Trapdoor Spiders, which was a group that that Pratt had created. I mean, this is a man that at one point they were living in an old mansion on a cliff, and it was essentially just nonstop party where people came and went. So obviously, obviously, money came from somewhere, but uh, didn't have to be all that much. I remember when I lived in Vegas and we were poor. We we had parties that would go for days. So, uh, and and we were poor, but booze was cheap and and friends were plentiful. But but yeah, it's 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 just this this great sort of dynamic. I mean, he read Norse sagas in the original language. Yeah. He read collections of of obscure mythologies just for fun. And I think it shows in his writing. His writing isn't necessarily – it's not necessarily the most approachable, right? And this is, this is a book that reads like it's older than it is. We, we've read some books where like, gosh, you know, th- this was written 80, 100 years ago, but it, it's not awkward. The, the language just flows and it, it seems like it could have been written within the past 20 years. This does not. This is this is definitely something that feels, you yeah, sit this, down to read. This does feel older. Uh, had the subject matter been more approachable, a little bit plainer, I think it would have been a much quicker and enjoyable read. It would have been quicker. I think. It, I think it would have lost some of its depth, though. It's. It, it's it's kind of tough in that fashion, right? I mean, it was kind of hit or miss. I just it it didn't grip me, I guess, the way that it was trying to uh, grip the reader with all of the court intrigue and the different judicial systems in the different lands. And but but I, again, this is this is where I think it gets I'm not kind the of target a, market. <laughs> no, well, and this is not a book for everybody, uh, but I think that's where this is more a kind of a, a treatise on politics and religion and, and law, right? Because we were exposed to all these different legal systems, and essentially all of them are, yeah, we do it our way. We don't really care if you if you want us to do it your way. That's not how we do it, and uh, and then they still kind of do it horribly. And yeah, I, I think that's that's sort of a condemnation line. of the the legal system in general, right? I, I think he makes some some really solid points. Well, um, I just repeat: superstition, lying, plain ignorance. Well, it's it's interesting because you know when when I was reading this novel, there's that sort of like you jump into the deep end aspect that you're talking about, Jen, where it's like you don't have any context for the who these people are, what this world is. You have to sort of discover all that, and and it does create this sort of sense that. Outside the borders of this story, there is a much richer sort of world that he's got in his mind, and it does create, like to your point, Bob, that there's there's this depth to it. But you know what? 
I was contrasting it to you is that it's very similar to a lot of the dying earth stories. And in many ways there is this sort of like, you know, these in dying earth though, it's played for humor, right? You know, they have these kind of odd religions that are sort of presented for their absurdity, right? This, and I think Pratt is trying to do something similar where every, every one of these countries, every one of these like religions has, you know, something that the main characters want to flee from, right? There's, there's, there's a, a rotten heart at the core of all these things, even when it's like, even with a, the God of love, you know, religion, they're, you know, how they approach work. It's like, you know, work, 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 or work is prayer and, and those kind of things. And in the end, you know, what the characters do, they flee from all of that, right? They just, that, that's sort of like their escape. Whereas, you know, Vance and, and Dying Earth, these things are very much a, you know, a, a thing of light touch and humor, which, you know, I think makes it easier to digest, you know, honestly. Um, but it's very similar. So it's really odd. There's a lot of picaresque sort of like, you know, move and transitions from place to place. There's, you know, these these odd religions and, and you know, villages and towns and things like that. Um, it, it, in, and I just, and there's an antihero too, right? You know, we got Kugel in one sense and we've got, you know, uh, Rivaldo and the other. Um, yeah, I, I think it, I think it's just, that's the hard thing for me to like, sort of like get into is that, you know, it's, it, it is more, more of a hard stop, right? When you encounter in the Pratt version. Well, and the other thing is, you know, this, this book is, is defined as, as part of the fantasy genre, but really to me, it feels more like a general novel. Um, we're, we're never really given, we're never really given a whole lot that makes you weave one way or another on, oh, well, this is, this is reskinned, you know, medieval Germany or, you know, feudal England. You know, there's, there's a couple little things here or there, but for the most part, other than the fact that they don't have you know, cars and steam engines, it's it really reminds me more of. I would say it reminds me more of Swift's Gulliver's Travels than it would remind me of, you know, Robert E. Howard's Conan. Right? There's there's definitely some pointed commentary going on here, um, a, a little bit of of political satire. But it, it it's it's given this this label of fantasy, which I think in the literary market diminishes it. I mean, it, because most people kind of turn their noses up at fantasy novels, right? I mean, that's why it's a small section of the bookstore and not the majority of the bookstore. Um, and so I think I think uh, it might have missed a large share of its target audience because they would never think to pick it up. Uh, also, because unlike most of his peers, this was never published in one of the magazines. Yes, it, it was never It was never in the pulps. I will, and that I don't know how well it would have gone over in the pulps, right? I mean, this is definitely not flashing, you know, flashing swords. No, it, it really felt more like a... Mm, medievalish uh, Zena Henderson. Like there's some sort of mystique, but you never exactly find out what it is until maybe a page before the end. Uh. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I would, I, I would say that the comparison to the space Amish would be a, would be a fair comparison. Yeah. You know, especially <laughs> because the thoughts uh, from 
the blue star essentially performing its telepathy for you, uh, all of the thoughts were in parentheticals. And I remember one of the biggest things about Zena Henderson's writing was that it was so sporadic. And that's what you're greeted with when you first meet Lillette, the the main character here. Yeah. All of these thoughts and parentheses about her mom and during this conversation with her mother. So it's a little bit disjointed to begin with, but then it starts making itself known a little bit better. I, I guess it, uh, you get into the flow of it a little better. Well, yeah, I think to read. <laughs> I was gonna say, they had an interesting sort of like, um, I guess, you know, sort of approach to it where, you know, it is a little like these parentheticals are, are a little bit like, oh, that's unusual. And it does like sort of alternate between Lilette's story and Rivaldo's story, you know, sort of back and forth. And, and those, those early in the parts, those are very long, right? Sort of, you know, expositions on each of those characters. And they get narrower and narrower and narrower until they're brought together. And then it's in those parentheticals are actually interesting because they all, they, they almost follow each other right in the same paragraph. And sometimes, and I like that as sort of like a device to show how their lives are sort of like now becoming so conjoined that their thoughts are almost, you know, in, in a I sense, they're present and next to each other. About the size of each segment. Getting, yeah. Kind of narrowing in. Funneled back together. Yeah. But, yeah. but can we talk a second about, about the blue star and, all of the powers that it possesses <laughs> being one, right? I mean, the, the, well, tech, I guess yeah. technically two, but he doesn't get to use the second yeah. one. It's just she knows if he cheats on her because it shuts off, it right? Has uh, be, <laughs> it has a lot of powers, but it has to be witched first. And I dig It has one power and it needs to be witched first. Witch well, is a verb. I love this. But Lalette is new. She doesn't know much magic she was trying to avoid having to cast anything but we also encounter another infused it with we encounter another blue star bearer and he has exactly the same power and that's it well it was one thing (laughs) what my understanding of it was is that it's specifically tied to when lilette loses her virginity she inherits the power from her mother right that's the there's like this sort of very you know you know, based on, on society is very matriarchal yeah yeah and, and so but your but that blue star you know i think there's an allusion to maybe a, another power where he has this sort of heightened perception he says you know it's not just like looking in somebody's eyes and telling you they're lying he has this sort of like you know awareness of things but it's never you know detailed out but the whole rules around the blue star were very difficult for me to to accept in some ways because it's it's like you know you lose it when you become unfaithful but there's so many times that Rivaldo's having these like very lustful thoughts and these actions and things like that but it's only when it crosses a specific line does the blue star turn off which i i found a little dis you know disenchanted with that whole concept after the, yeah and then there's you're pursuing this maid for very London style or, you know, uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's sort of like, I'm having my adventures, but of course I don't lose the power until I, well, I, 
And then there's then there's the whole well, it does other things if you betray me because if you betray me and and I ask for it back, you must give it to me because if you don't, it will forever curse you and be your doom. Like, is that good PR or? And then we watch as everything goes to hell in a handbasket for him when uh, when he loses a connection with Wusar. I'm like, all right now. This could be coincidence, or <laughs> maybe, maybe the stone really has this power. He's extremely ill, and she can tell that. Well, just just like the other witch. Now that when, I had uh, a huge problem with. <laughs> uh, the, the other witch is like, oh my god! You know his his wife will know that I, that I have bewitched him, and, and this that. Well, of course you. Know, Spoiler alert, the blue star was already dead at that point. But uh, has no no affiliation or attunement to this woman, but she's still allowed to turn it back on. I don't I don't get that. Because it's just a matter of enchantment. But in, I but thought also, it was tied to the family line. But the stone isn't, because they talk about the fact that you know people would certainly be willing to buy the stone and covet the stones and want them. Okay. So so they're not bound in that fashion. It's just it takes I, a witch to power it. I had it in my head that since it was a family heirloom. Oh no, I was right there with you. It, it took me a minute to kind of wrap my brain around. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Well, it's also this thing like the witches in this world have been suppressed, right? You know, they're, they're, yeah. it's alternate history, witchcraft developed, but at some point there is this counter movement against it and, and essentially witches were eliminated. You know, there's this sort of natural yeah. evolution of magic that peaks out, you know, every once in a while. And it's, and it's sort of this weird sort of, it's tolerated. They can't outright, you know, kill every, all of them, but they can't accept them into society so that there are still blue stars around. But it is confusing because, the witch that you know that he encounters that tries to you know essentially sell his body for parts or whatever it was, right. um, you know, how does she get her powers? Right, you know, she, there's like there's no blue star that her husband uh, you know says that he has or anything like that. Did she just learn it? And it well, they, they mentioned though things because they were out on the outskirts and like it, early early in the out. book they mentioned that a lot of the blue stars have been lost over the generations yeah. and have, have disappeared. So it's it's not that she's from outside the, the the witching lineage so much as her family no longer has a blue star. It was it was well, why they have. Well, it was it was point. why it was so important that Rodverd get together with Lalette because Lalette's family had a blue star, or was believed to have a blue star. They weren't even sure that they had it. And even Lalette's mother wasn't positive, right? Which is like, well, it's supposed to be in here. Let's break this open and see. So to Mark's point, I will say that the first third of this book, I got serious Hunchback of Notre Dame vibes off of it. The evil cleric and Mm -hmm. the chasing the dark-skinned witch at... (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, this is this is on Appendix N, and I wonder if it's because it was foundational in some of the politics of Greyhawk, right? Because oh. I mean, this certainly you don't really see a lot of a lot of ties between this and D and D as as just played, right? Mm-hmm. Or gaming as played. So I wonder if it was influential in some of the the backgrounds for gaming because. Yeah, this is 
this is a heady read. This is not a, a, a sit down and, uh, and watch people split in twain sort of thing. I tried. <laughs> it, took me, it took me <laughs> it took me more than halfway through this book to really even switch gears I mean, normally a book this size would be done in a few hours and after a day's worth of reading I was halfway through and I was kind of slogging and the reason I was slogging wasn't because of the writing style it was because of my expectations and this was not what I expected and once I managed to switch gears, I was like, okay, we're using big brain now. Look at big <laughs> concepts, big concepts. And, and it nice. became a much, a much uh, more entertaining read once I got to that point. Once I, once I had an understanding for what I believe Fletcher Pratt was actually doing with the book and I got it, I was, I was all in. I stuck with it because Uncle Mike said he liked it. And, 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 and you know, at, at the end of the day, I enjoyed it as well. It's just, it's not going to be a book for everybody just because it's, it's not the fantasy novel that you're expecting. If you like The Worm Ouroboros or Gormenghast, you're going to like this book. If you don't, you're going to have, you might have issues with this book. Well, now that we've uh, pounded this book <laughs> into the ground, like it's the reading room or something, um, <laughs> maybe we should get out to the uh, gameable parts of this. Maybe. Well, you know, we we needed to talk about the book a lot because I don't know how much game <laughs> stuff there really is in here. Um, Are you kidding? I, no, not, not at least from, from where I was at. Um, uh, first of all, I thought the blue star itself with, you know, the ability to read minds becomes an interesting concept Uh as as a judge at the table, I would have a villain with something like that, and I would represent it by the villain being able to listen in on all of the player table talk. He knows what they're thinking, so he's aware of all of that. It's it's a bit meta, but players spending twenty minutes to plan an attack is rather meta as well. So you know he understands what's going on in their in their minds and can respond accordingly. Um, there was also, there was a comment about, um, about probability and how just because something was possible didn't mean it was probable. And the exact quote was like, every molecule in, in a bottle, suddenly you're going in one direction. I was like, well, that'd be a great idea for a spell, something that affects probability. All molecules moving in one direction is a really big deal and could, could uh, do, a, do a lot of damage or inflict a lot of force. Uh, so I, that concept really kind of tickled my brain. And uh, I, I was also sort of with Mark. I think overall this reminded me of Dying Earth and everywhere you went there was strange customs and cultures and working some of these, some of the religious interplay um, into the game might be interesting. I'm, I'm generally not a big fan of uh, clerics that are like, well, my God is the only true God. So you, you live in a world that's, that people know gods multiple exist. You live in a polytheistic society. So you can't say that that doesn't work. That doesn't fit the world. But when you're saying things like, according to my religion, this is the way, and your faith does it wrong, and here's why, okay, now you have my attention, right? And uh, working stuff like that in could be kind of fun. 
Those those are my ideas to pull from the table. What what do you have, Mark? Well, you know, the interesting idea of how the spell casting is effectuated, where in witchery you trace a pattern right on some surface or even on a person. And I love that idea of, you know, this sort of like contact and tracing and, and the accidental casting. And the accidental casting, yeah. So I think that's a, a very cool mechanic, you know, just in terms of like you could add that for flavor, could even create a table, right? You know, some, you know, uh, a spell, ca- you know, like a spell burning like table where you say, this is how I'm I'm doing my my rune tracing or this is just how I do it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was neat. Um, There's a lot of curses that you could generate from this book. Um, oh, certainly. There, you know, at one point, there's a reference to, you know, having, having witched him to work like a clock. You know, he's, he doesn't, you know, in the end, he doesn't have the skills to do this, but, you know, essentially that he's just become this sort of automaton where, you know, he has to just view things as ordered over and over again. And, and that's why he's worth more as this, you know, prisoner um, or like how she causes, you know, the, uh, the Amorosian who's on the ship with her, the third mate to just, you know, she says, go away, almost like, you know, powered command or something. And he just walks and walks until he walks off the ship, right? You know, which is a, it's a very much a, you know, curse, but it turns out to be a, a spell at the same time. Um, and then there's a reference to how she's been asked to essentially disable the bishop or the, the leader of the uh, ecclesiasticals. And, you know, you know, you can paralyze him, you can cripple him, you can drive him idiots, you know. So these are kind of rich stews for new curses to be born out of. Um, nice. Bob, you mentioned like this sort of, you know, un- unexpected results. All of those things are triggered by her anger, it seemed, right? Where she's just in a flash of, you know, uh, of, of anger or, fr- or or just frustration. She does something and this unexpected consequence, like the murder is, is one of the things, or when she does the table and it shows she's a witch and everybody has this you know, big reaction. And I kind of love the idea of that being, you know, a, a thing that happens when you cast spells, you, you maybe you have to, or when you have a, a, pers- a specific encounter, you have to make a personality check. Otherwise you unleash some, you know, magical effect unwillingly, right? And I, I would dig that as a mechanic. Um, there's yeah. <laughs> there were points in the book where some people seem to have developed through almost mentat-like abilities or mentat-like abilities the ability to uh, be immune to witchcraft, like the Amorosians. Mm-hmm. Or I have this, or like the ones that are sort of like deacons, or you know, you know, the higher level ones in the in the hierarchy. They're they can't be read by the blue star, and they they you know, there's a reference to saying nine times out of ten, your witchery won't work on them, you know. So they've almost made themselves, um, through thought process or through the devotion to their their church, you know, uh, their religion, this immunity. Yeah. And that's kind of a, an interesting sort of you know, in a world where witchery you know has sort of been suppressed, but in a what about a fantasy world where there's all these kind of like you know, magic of it, you can specialize in in tuning yourselves to avoid the effects of one type of thing, you know, maybe that's something you could, you could use as a, as an interesting uh, device. Um, the last thing I had, which is the, they see, you know, you mentioned that Fletcher Pat, where did the money come from? This book is in addition to like lust and sex and all those things. There's a lot of focus on money and, and, and poverty and the characters not having enough resources they, and when they do, you know, they they go across the world and um, they try to use their currency that they the what little they have, and and it's rejected as as almost against the law. You know, I think there's like a good point where they say that. And I thought that was a fun thing that you could introduce in a campaign where 
there is no sort of universal gold or silver piece or you know copper piece. You're going to have all these you know, different kingdoms representing their own sort of like you know stamp. And taking that across the border, maybe there is a reason that you can't use it at all, right? So you're suddenly your accumulated wealth that you may have gotten from a you know an orc hoard, you you can't use it because you're in the wrong place, and now you have another you know travel or quest that you have to go to actually be able to spend this coin, or maybe somebody can only buy it off you for pennies on the dollar. I thought that's kind of a fun yeah, thing. Yeah, maybe that, it's seen know. as paraphernalia. Yeah. Well, <laughs> That that reminds you. There's a there was a podcast I've listened to called A Voice from Darkness, and they they've got kind of this side story with this weird kind of parallel space that you can find yourself in, and it's it is the city of Farbosia, and uh, this this map maker from our world wanders through. He, he walks this way one way on a road, but you you if you walk back, it doesn't take you the same way. And everyone thinks he's from Farbosha. So while he's trying to pay, it's it's bad luck to take Farbosha money. Mm. Your money's literally not good here. So by custom or superstition, mm-hmm. that that I think would be a real eye-opening moment for players. And like, okay, well, we're going to go to the tavern. We're going to get some drinks. We're going to rent a room so we have a place to stay for the night. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't take here. That's, yeah, and suddenly you, you have to come up with another way of paying, you know, working your wages, which yep. or, you know, accepting that quest you would never have accepted before, you know, because you you need the money. You know, the, that's a good adventure hook. Thing. Yeah. Well, I dig that. What about you, Jen? I'm sitting back here grinning and chiming in and nodding vigorously because I have played in that game where poverty was a major character from the beginning. Uh, Andy Markham ran us through a great Shutter Mountains campaign. And what you had on your zero level starting character was what you had. Mm-hmm. Full stop. There's no shop that's got this. If you, uh, for instance, wanting any sort of hide armor, well, you got to go find the cow, you know? <laughs> if, if you <laughs> might find some really thick pieces of leather from one. One of the last uh, butcher butcheries, and maybe you can work in exchange to get this from somebody, or you can do them a favor. But you can't buy it. You don't have any gold. You can't. You know, you could steal it, but there's a lot more of them than there are of you. So, how how do you work that into it? And it was. It was run beautifully. That's a really good way of putting it too. That poverty is a character in the in the campaign. Hats off to Andy. I mean, he he rocked it uh, for a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> hey, a lot of good things did come out of the pandemic. Who knew? Um, I see this entirety, the entirety of this book, though, as just a mine of settings and NPCs that you can create. Uh, most uh, important off of that conversation would be a spell or a ritual of some sort to convert or exchange currency from one to another. Make make your money uh, good here now (laughs) instead of not good. Uh, Wow, that was articulate, Jen. Another thing that really caught my attention and my imagination were the costumes that had been infused with personalities. Oh yeah! By the boy who had basically um, 
almost been orphaned because his mom had been babysat by the costumes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that could be just perfectly creepy. There's enough adventures around that have like taxidermied animals. You know, what if they're actually just characters, not monsters, but characters with personalities and they could have, I mean, they could have any sort of properties or qualities, just like a sword. Yeah, maybe, I can see that. maybe they have the patron. If you look at the annual, they've got the rules for like the uh, patron uh, swords, things mm -hmm. of that nature, where the personality is actually trapped within. So I, I thought that could be really fun. Yeah, there there are some cute moments like that in the book that like. I thought, oh, that's really nice, you know, <laughs> that little, the boy who made stories about the the mask. I like that quite a bit. Oh, you're 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 back. You're so and so, but you're not cold anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, and and the whole, you know, he killed her when the guy knocks the head off of the dummy wearing the costume. No, no, what the spirit in the head is gone now. If mom makes it a new head. It will be someone else. Mm -hmm. yeah, but there was kind of a point in that. was bad in that house, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, a little gray there. It was a sad kid. <laughs> Poor little dude. Yeah. All right, that's it for me. Well, then, what do you have for props and audio? I think we should all invest in stuffed lizards. <laughs> okay, you you can't just you can't just leave that hanging. I mean, I could. Uh, no, the stuffed lizards hung above establishments to denote that someone within practiced the art medic. Yeah. <laughs> so you're looking for a healer. You're looking for a stuffed lizard. And I've heard somebody refer to that before, so now I get it. Hmm. Mark. I went immediately to the badges that are worn by um, the different NPCs, as you said, Jen. And it, I thought, you know, one interesting thing you do is suddenly evoking the status in a role-playing moment is by having the PCs wear analogs, right? You know, or the players wear analogs, where that's, you are a coronet, so you are of the nobility, and you are me mechanician, so you, you're sort of, you know, these stratas that are defined... And as a judge, you can use that, you know, for the interactions, right? So there's a difference, you know, from somebody of one strata or one background coming, you know, that's there. And they have to, I think the badges sort of reinforce that in a role-playing sense. And so I think making up badges and, and distributing the players for, like, kind of fun role-playing elements would be kind of cool. Um, and that leads us to our regular section of music that Bob is <laughs> on my list. Well, okay, so the, I, yeah. I posted the link to the, to the Spotify list, which is about six and a half hours by the time I was done. Uh, <laughs> we left you alone for too long. Sorry. So there, because because there's sort of this timeless quality to to the book and to the setting. Um, my brain kind of drifted to Venetian music from the Renaissance. So I started with like uh, Venezia Stravag... I can say this. <laughs> Venezia Stravagantissima. 
um, which was a great <laughs> album. Dance music through the ages, specifically disc two, uh, string quartet number eight, opus one ten, by uh, Dmitri Shostakovich, and and so that was that was kind of my my starting points. You know, I, I had some some great kind of moody uh, Venetian music, some of it dance, some of it kind of dark, and uh, from there my brain went. This is not the music that the majority of the DCC community is going to listen to. <laughs> not not that they they won't listen to classical. It's just not the not the primary choice of a lot of folks. Glad you picked up on that. And uh, and so I then drifted into neoclassical, which as a genre is more a genre among guitarists, but they're guitarists you would know. Um, so uh, things like the Concerto for Group and Orchestra by Deep Purple. Um, Concerto Suite for Electric Guitar and Orchestra in E-flat Minor by Yngwie Malmsteen. Uh, Perpetual Burn by Jason Becker from uh, Cacophony and Megadeth. Instrumental Variations by David Chastain. Neoclassical Compositions Number 2 Duets by David Chastain. Um, some Vinnie Moore, who played with Alice Cooper and uh, I think plays with UFO now. Time Odyssey and The Maze. Um, Chromaticity by Tony Caroline. Yeah, and I mean, he played with Steve Vai, Vinnie Moore, Planet X. Um, it's, it's Chromaticity, Bob. Chromaticity, there we are. Yes. Um, Inquisition <laughs> Symphony by Apocaly- Apocalyptica, which covers Metallica, Smashing Pumpkins, Faith No More, and, and, and more in this, this neoclassical style. And then just because when I think of classical music with any sort of, like, metal at all, I think of, you know, Beethoven in Bill and Ted and Play With Me by Extreme, <laughs> right? I mean, which the album oh, version no, is, is God, different from what you see on screen. But, but, uh, but, yeah, come on, right? I mean, that, that scene just so sort of defines the layperson's understanding of, of neoclassical music and is a great sort of entry point in the movie, not so much on the album, but in the movie, <laughs> it's a great entry point. Um, and really, I mean, you can't go wrong with any of those artists. I mean, you could listen to Yngwie Malmsteen for days. Granted, it, it, listening to Yngwie Malmsteen for days would also be like listening to a hummingbird for days because he can play so fast, but it's good stuff. And, uh, for me, that sort of captured the vibe from this this ethereal Renaissance era music to a more modern interpretation. Out of curiosity, did you pick these selections after day one of reading or after reading the entire thing? <laughs> uh, it was during day two. Day two, like I said, day one of reading, I mean, eight hours, right? Eight hours to get through half the book. It took me about two to get through the other half. Um, okay. so, so the first half of the book was just really rough, but once, once it switched for me, it was sort of like, uh, when I read, uh, Asimov's foundation, I was about halfway through the first book when all of a sudden something switched on my brain and I grokked it. And, uh, at that point, that's when I was able to start thinking, okay, now music and I started getting a feel for how I perceived that world. So... Yes, yes. Yes, yeah. I, I, I think it does capture it. You know, and, um, 
So I, speaking of capturing, let's talk about language. Oh, Professor Mark. <laughs> uh, this was a very rich uh, stew of words for uh, for us to draw from, or for that I really found um, intriguing. It, it's it's very much akin to wordsmiths like Vance, and we kind of made those kind of comparisons before. It's reinforced by the words because there's so many, you know, either new words, you know, that, that he's making up. Or just like obscure words, words that you you corner across, you look up the definition, you go, how did he know this? Like, how <laughs> is it the Norse that he's reading in the original that's the lineage of this? But it's obviously, you know, he he very much you know has this this appreciation for works of a time period, and, and a lot of these words that you know are in here are sort of have that European sort of you know aspect to them, you know, like almost courtly in many ways, or Italian Renaissance, but. I had, I think I had like I wrote down twenty or twenty five of them, just as a few examples. Ankylost, um, just a few. <laughs> Fargal, um, uh, the other what is it? A Culvertine. Wait, wait. Yeah. Bargle can be used without argle preceding it. It's it, it has other uses than just argle bargle. The <laughs> uh, demosil, you know, which is this sort of it's a is a very pretty word, but that's like the common name for every lady you know of a certain status in, in the in the work dompter uh which you know there's this great sort of sentence where i one of the npcs that you talked about jen that um is a more flavorful or colorful character is salad deer i think i can't remember what it, but he's the swordsman you know that they that escorts them around the the last few chapters and he's got this very much a swashbuckling you know mm-hmm. roguish you know uh sort of aspect to him but he he greet he's very cheerful and he greets uh, uh, the, them you know yeah, by yeah. saying hail dauntless dompter of the written page and dompter means <laughs> yeah. subduer or tamer and and and, he, and so that, those kind of wordplay things are are very much you know something that you can tell Pratt is having fun with. Um, so the whole list, yeah, I think we'll we'll try it. Hopefully, we can you know include it in the show notes. Um, there is a lot. And... There's there's one on your list. I think is definitely worth mentioning, though that that you have that you are not mentioning. Hmm. Well, we that? did just we did just cover a book set in Pellucidar, and Pellucid is one of your words, Mark. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> is the meaning of it like uh, transmitting or allowing the passage of light, translucent, transparent? Yeah. My favorite was glyptics. Glyptics. <laughs> I didn't have that on my list. I think that was, that was one I, I I probably just passed over saying, that's got to be a made-up word. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but it was fun. It was I, fun I from ready, the aspect sorry. of discovering new words. And some of these, I'm like, I have to use that in some future writing project just because it's just too fun, you know, not to. Dying um, Earth Box 2. <laughs> again, again. Uh, yes that's a very much a, a, a Vancian kugel type word um and then just also like along the same veins he's very creative when it comes to creating new names for places or uh you know titles and things like that it, it's it's very much you know invented in in uh, ways like a you know tokens or invented language um, I appreciated that the work that sort of went into that to make it seem not so close to something that you're like, oh, that's obviously what it is. 
but also not like you know really an English word that you've come you've come across before. And so it does create this sort of you know foreignness and richness to that that foreignness that I appreciate. Well, enough wordsmithing. How about uh, DCC? It is the art of engraving on precious stones. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get it. Um, how about we move on to reskins uh, or inspirations? Yeah, Jen, do you have some in mind? Uh, yeah, I've got a bunch revolving around this uh, world called DCC Lankmar. Uh, <laughs> so, so many different uh, scenes and and settings in the story. So because of the heavy uh, religious tones, of course, blasphemy and larceny, with the discussion of all of the other uh, temples that might be along uh, Temple Row there, uh, Gang Lords of Lankmar is you could have oh, Rodvar's organization as one of the gangs in play mm -hmm. for the goings on of, of this story. And I, I need to give a shout out to DCC Lankmore number seven. Unfortunately, it's out of print and hardcover or hard copy, but you can get it in PDF still a dozen Lankmar locations <laughs> because I swear they went through so many. Uh, the heist and the DCC day adventure, the heist was also set in Lankmar, but set in the grand, uh, what was the word Pratt uses? Uh, pensionario. Yes. Um, yeah, so kind of a palace, kind of the old, the the rich quarter. The pensionario itself, now that I think about it, was in the higher class district, but was still kind of a boarding house. So maybe maybe not quite so uh, word for word on that one. Um, going back to the the pilgrimage for each of the different religions in Dying Earth. I, Mark, Pilgrims of the Black Obelisk, come on! <laughs> <laughs> and the, the last one that comes to mind through all of this, as it often does during a, a setting of this nature, especially with poverty being its own character and things like clothing being so difficult to find even. Uh, theater of the Hand, where you are encouraged to play dress up and talk to the talking animals and go through the little quests so that you can actually get something to eat at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And a great adventure. And that one's by uh, Clint Bahady from Order of the Quill. What about you, Mark? My mind went to Shutter Mountains pretty quickly, just because the you know the the broad sort of world that you have with that campaign setting, the obviously the witching and the the, the sort of this um, you know folkloric magic, right? You know that's that's it's not high fantasy magic. It's very much 
in the vein that Michael Curtis, who wrote most of the Shutter Mountains materials, with it, starting with the chain coffin, um, you know, that that's that's what it's drawing from in the Appalachian, you know, sort of analog setting. So I think you could easily take a, a Shutter Mountain, you know, to, you know, rules and, and setting and reskin it for, you know, uh, this this Pratt world. And, you know, maybe there is a suppression of witch, you know, witching and witchcraft. You know, maybe there's there's outlawed, you know, uh, you know, devices and artifacts that are that are kept close watch on, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, that's that's something that I think would be easy to do. I also thought of uh, a miracle was framed. Another Michael Curtis um, one because there's a it's a nice sort of early city setting, right? You know where you have this, yeah. you know, intrigue with the 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 you know the tower that you have to go into, but you have to align yourselves with these, you know, the city uh, organization. And so you could you could yeah. make that sort of a mini sort of you know version of you know the Sola, uh, you know the the country or you know that they're in i can't remember if that's how you yeah pronounce yeah, it. yeah um yeah and and i think you could you know sort of easily sort of play that into well you know what this is a obvious sort of a front against the religion so we have to go and and put it out and you know the adventures are called to action to do that and the last i was going to call out is um there's a uh a, a short sort of setting slash you know probably interlude uh, adventure called Through the Cotillion of Hours by Daniel Bishop. And what made me think of this is that there's a, a sort of, you're in a dream world, right? You know, this is sort of the, the the way this adventure works. And without revealing too much, you know, this that's sort of the setting, you know, within the Pratt novel, you can use that sort of as a conveyance, right, for your players, your PCs to get into this alternate reality that's set up in, in Daniel's work. Um, there's also a masquerade, right? You know, sort of like, you know, there's a period in the Pratt novel um, where the Blue Star, where they're in a ball and there's obviously this sort of high society, you know, sort of aspect to it and those intrigues that are going around. So you can easily take, you know, sort of that masquerade setting and layer it in and, you know, have the NPCs, you know, with their machinations interacting with the PCs and, and the players reacting to that. Um, so that's one that just also just shouting out because I think it's it's one of those early you know, uh, versions of, of DCC adventures that doesn't get as much attention as some of the later ones. So definitely go check it out. I think it's Purple Duck Games that that was published under, like all mm -hmm. of uh, Daniel's other, you know, a lot of his works. Um, I'd say, you know, if if you had an idea in DCC, there's a good chance Daniel got there first. So <laughs> you can read a lot of what he's written. It's, uh, it's all worth it. Uh, what about you, Bob? Well, you know, first of all, I've got to say that, you know, I, I hadn't even considered Lankmar, and I really should have. I mean, the first, like, 50 oh pages God. of the book are, are using the laying low mechanic from DCC yes. Lankmar, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote Blasphemy and Larceny in Lankmar, and I did not think of, uh, of, of overlaying anything with that. Um, my, I, I kind of went for, uh, for broad strokes for most of the stuff that I was thinking about, um, the 998th Conclave of Wizards is really, it's it's less of an adventure and more of a mini setting. I mean, there is kind of an adventure thread that you can play through, but it really is. It's, it's the city, it's the factions, it's all the weird individuals. And for me, that was very, very ripe for, uh, for inserting some, some Fletcher Pratt and some Blue Star. Um, yeah. Especially when you start dealing with the servants of of the various wizards and their factions, 
uh, DCC Dying Earth as as kind of a whole as as Thank we you. discussed. <laughs> Um, well, I think I, I think we're all in agreement with that. I mean, we all mentioned it at different times. I'm just the one that literally mentioned it in the reskin section. And uh, I would say that while I didn't think of Blasphemy and Larceny, I did think of Magnific Machinations at the Grand Exposition of Marvels because of all of the various factions and, and kind of the backbiting that goes on within the first half of the adventure, the, the setup for the heist. Yeah, it's a very very much like a microcosm, you know, of what, you know, this sort of like broader thing, because it's so, it's so you know, part of this like one little area. But you're right, it's it's a lovely adventure for that first setup and how these, you have to play off the different groups and all the, what I really like, Bob, is that how you have these different like sort of reaction options, you know, for the judge to go through for each of those oh, factions. right, with all of the NPCs, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the first the first half is is very role play heavy, and for something like this, I think that type of adventure works very well. You you can take all of these various religious and political themes and and run those through those factions, and it just would add even more depth to it. So those were those were kind of the things that leapt to my mind. Um, Shutter Mountains didn't didn't even spring to my mind until Jen mentioned you know poverty as a character in the campaign, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and really I guess that that witch that that reenchants the blue star certainly could be Shudfolk. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's she's very much uh, in, having and those also, characteristics. <laughs> I mean, could also be a witch from Dying Earth. Yep. Yep. So that is, but that's what I have. All, all really good. Um, but that brings us to our DCC feature for the show. And speaking of Lankmar, um, the greatest thieves in Lankmar by the Goodman Games tournament team. So very much a um, uh, a fun you know, sort of uh, way to tie this in. But Bob, do you want to give us a bit of a overview? From the most famous city in the history of fantasy comes a sword and sorcery adventure that only the best gamers will survive. <laughs> the Greatest Thieves in Lankmar is a dungeon crawl classics adventure that sends characters into the hot cellars beneath Thieves' house, across the sooty rooftops of the city of seven score thousand smokes, and on to a mad dash through the palace of the Overlord. This box set comes with everything you need to run an epic adventure over several sessions, whether you run it standalone or as part of an ongoing campaign. When you open the box, you'll be in the company of legends. The Greatest Thieves in Lankmar was first run as a tournament at Gen Con 2019, where 20 nationally competitive teams competed over four fantastic days and three hard-fought rounds. Characters died alone, lost beneath Thieves' house as their torches burnt out one by one. After 44% of the tables experienced TPKs, I'm not exactly sure how you get 44% out of 20 teams, but 44% experienced TPKs and nearly 6 in 10 PCs were killed. One team survived to win the tournament. How will your players compare? I'm sorry, I shouldn't give away spoilers like most of them were, Haley. Um, we really need to hire the movie phone guy to do that. Well, we the, re- the reason the 44% math works out is because it's not just the first round that where the 20 teams played. It's overall. Oh, teams can multiple TPK. 
Yeah. Well, no, it's like some teams got to the second round in TPK and some teams got to the third round in TPK. So it's multiple rounds. Of but TPK. we also include all of those stats for you in the box set. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, just the they're constantly being chased. They're they're constantly, like you said, Bob, trying to lay low. They're they're constantly in these different settings with these different maps. and. If you play it in a campaign setting, oh, you, you have so many opportunities for player agency and NPCs and and that I, I don't want to say conflict, but uh, you you have the option for just so much cooperative storytelling in there. And I mean, Mark, Come on, I, I see your note there, so I'm not going to take it away from you. <laughs> well, there was a point in the Blue Star where our, you know, protagonists are having to escape, right? And they they start going onto the roofs, and they start like, going to this. And I was so eager for that moment of like, okay, they're going to be the Lankmar, you know, sort of, because this is essentially, you know, it's a rooftop chase, you know, that sort of, you know, start of that whole whole uh, thing in the Greatest Thieves where, you know that's a fun thing, and and that I think the tournament offers is a sort of different ways of evasion and different ways of you know showing off the chase, not just a you know you're fleeing the dungeon type thing, but you have these kind of like rooftops you have to run across, or you know you have to go through these clotheslines of of women's uh, you know undergarments, or you know all these things that are sort of make it very much a a real feeling thing, and that's you know obviously the Langmar is very good at doing that. But yeah, I think, uh, rooftop chases is just one of the things I really loved about the Great Thieves, and you know, it's, it, I think you could totally have that be you know part of a uh, Pratt's you know Blue Star universe as well. Well, and I, I, since, since it is literally a question in the chat, is there a Lank Bar? Um, there is. There is one of the uh, one of the sequences in I think it's the second round. Mm-hmm. is a drinking contest at the Blighted Bloom. And again, it's kind of a a <laughs> microcosm of of Lankmart's. Um... Well, you say that that's, like, you say it's a bar. We, well, we it's much more than that, Bob. <laughs> well, the, the, Blighted, the Blighted Bloom, of course, is a, is a brothel in Lankmar. Um, Which takes place in the book, too. It, it's thematic. Yes. Oh, no, <laughs> it, it totally is. It was a... Uh, the, the Blighted Bloom was the original, uh, essentially, hideout for the campaign playtest characters, and it has since made its way into <laughs> official publications with we Madame Rose. We tried to burn it down Bloom. twice. Um, and you know, the, the fact is that you know she's going to cheat, and how you make it through the encounter rather depends on how you react to that, because... Mm-hmm. You're strangers here. You're you're the newcomers that came barging in, and there's a whole lot of people that know Madame Rose a whole lot better than they know you, and they certainly like her a lot more than they like you. Is it. is your money good here, people? Come on. <laughs> and uh, of course, the conceit for the greatest thieves in Lankmar is the bauble, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody has the all-powerful necklace that does different things, or at least 
one thing really well, <laughs> just oh, like shit. Blue Star. <laughs> and but but, the but there are so many powers to the Blue Star. All of the powers <laughs> it possesses. One possesses one. <laughs> the idea through through the adventure and through the book is to keep the bobble safe and or depending on your allegiance and alliance get it to a certain power that be mm-hmm. power powers that be yeah yeah that uh pay no attention to my uh, my language here i just yeah there there's absolutely something magic about the rooftop chase and the minute we came across that scene in the book, I was like, absolutely. We are. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're, yeah we've got to do this. <laughs> well, the one difference that I can think of between these two is that, you know, the bobble and the greatest thieves obviously has this one power, does that well. But we never had any teams try to lose the power of the bobble by becoming unfaithful to their significant <laughs> It would have been interesting Hashtag if they had, goal. and we would have had to come up with come up with something on the fly. Where we got rules for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and see, I think of the the roof the the rooftop scene that I think of in in the Blue Star when they're like, "Oh, we're trapped. We'll, we'll just creep out here and we'll wander around. We can't get anywhere." So, uh, to to me, that was like very like 1950s, 60s sitcom. But when they but the conclusion of that was we walked a little bit out of that way, we hid and then we walked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, just or or maybe a little bit of Hitchcock's high anxiety, but uh Well I mean you yeah. can do that in practically well, vertigo, high anxiety was anyway, but, uh, but yeah, I just got the mechanics and, and the map and everything for it with this and you just you can't go wrong. It's it, it was fun to run as a tournament. Obviously, we had a lot of good feedback on it. It's one of those things that, you know, I think players really enjoyed. But I, I would love to hear tales of somebody running it as part of their campaign, you know, just as a um, how integrated it is, right? Because obviously, you could have this sort of as a one-off sort of like you have to go steal something, you have to go through this. But I like really, Jen, that idea of like, how do you, you know, have this sort of integrated with your rest of your world? Uh, hopefully, people are doing that and hopefully people are enjoying it you know, in, in different ways, uh, not just as a pure tournament. Well, and and nothing says Lankmar more than a chase scene, right? I mean, was it Massive Lankmar was the first, then Blasphemy and Larceny, and then Greatest Thieves. Chases are like Lankmar Adventure Gold. Mm-hmm. Jen, you're muted. <laughs> I don't even know how that happens. Sorry. Uh, Fate's Fortuna's Folly has a specific chase mechanic to it um i think there was one in no yeah the the, well, they, uh, the i think we mentioned before, was the main but, one for gang lords but the gangs of ur hadad you know the that has that that yeah. oh. i ever came across yeah the uh the, the uradad stuff from uh the old metal gods had yeah. some great chase stuff yeah, uh, don't forget to drop that in our show notes, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, have we covered everything? That I think we've covered everything. We we certainly we certainly discussed the book in in great detail. 
See, Bob, we found a lot that we could talk about outside the book. Oh yeah, well, I'm I'm very impressed, really, by by how much there was that uh, that you folks came up with for for reskins and the like, I, and a stat. So I, I love the book, but I I didn't get as much gameable content from it as you did. And and for our our newer joiners, our newer viewers here uh, on the Twitch channel, there are content warnings for the book, but not for the game. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all. Um, we have recently relocated the Sanctum Secorum, and that's caused some delays in our ongoing projects. But the next lease, l- release from author Ashraf Brandon is due within a week. Look for Behogo, the patron of cattle on Drive Through RPG. Hopefully, I, I pronounce that right, Bob. I, I believe so. We 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 haven't gotten the pronunciation notes yet to Jen, so I'm not positive. But that's where I'm at, Behogo. In the meantime, this brings our latest season to a close. What we'll be reading next month, we will start season four with Less Darkness Fall by Elsprog de Camp. Another um, one of Michael Moorcock's favorites. And a co-author on many works with uh, Fletcher Pratt. Uh, so in cube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's, a, that's a trigger for you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, but if you are enjoying the show, please comment on the podcast or help us by posting a review on iTunes or YouTube. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast and our community, which is wonderful. Um, any last thoughts, folks? As before, we close out our season. It's been, I think. This year has been fabulous, you know, for the works that we've covered for me personally. I've just really enjoyed it and I'm looking really uh you know forward to next year as well. We're gonna we're gonna have a lot of, of fun things. We do. We've got we've got a lot of great books lined up and we're we have, we've got a lot of really good but really fun reading ahead. And and I swear to God, I really thought that August Derleth book was better than it than it was. I swear I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious! Uh, you can look for uh, Legends of Uganda from Ashraf Braden to land on the uh, Goodman Games online store soon. Awesome! Stares questioningly at Jen. Uh, <laughs> what? When? <laughs> um, soon. Oh, uh, we've had that's, a... that's the normal line. Soon. Oh, we've had a re- oh, oh uh, redemption oh. for a random joke or random fact from Jen. Oh, random fact. Um, I I don't I don't know how random it is, but um, you know we're actually looking for more bookcases because we lost some in our move. So there's kind of random. That's a that's a depressing fact. We can. Sorry. Oh, uh, the listeners want a random fact about kitties. Uh, Oh, Idris was visiting us. At the beginning of our show, named for uh, Idris, Idris Seabright, one of the pen names that Margaret St. Clair used when she first started out. Hmm. So little Idris was the one being all cute on screen earlier. Sorry. And and if you have uh, have read or played Night of the Bog Beast, since that draws some inspiration <laughs> yeah. from a Margaret St. Clair story... There is a little Idris in there as well. And that was before <laughs> the cat joined our, our household or even came into our lives. So there you go. 
random weird thoughts. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's it for us for now, right? We've got less darkness fall from last one. Um, oh, be sure to watch if you haven't already gone to the replay for it or find it on YouTube or on our website, the Michael Moorcock interview from just three days ago. Which has also already been released as a podcast episode. Awesome. We got to sit down uh, at the feet of Uncle Mike again yeah. to get him to tell and some you, stories. You, you call it an interview. It's that's a rather, rather loose <laughs> use of there. We we you know, Michael Moorcock was generous enough with his time and told us a lot about his oh. experience of writing. It was it was wonderful. But I think we asked three questions. <laughs> but, but the answers we got. I know. Oh my so, God. So wonderful, yeah. They sweep. You, yeah. <laughs> they're a little sweeping and they little are, long. but they're they're so it's so wonderful. And there's so I mean I I until that until that day when I was researching, I did not realize that Michael Moorcock wrote the screenplay for one of my favorite movies growing up, uh, <laughs> The Land That Time Forgot. And so all you know, asking about that and all of the detail about about how we got the job and, and anecdotes from the from the filming and it's like I didn't even I told them there you know, I'd do it as long as there wasn't a volcano I didn't know and I'm like I remember a volcano it's like I didn't know there was a volcano until they wheeled out the barrels of oatmeal and there's there's so many anecdotes and stories That's not going to make any sense. <laughs> it will when they listen to it, but there's 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 just so much information. It was so wonderful, and he is he's so generous with his time. Yeah, and we got Sorry, to talk about his, his new book and yeah. it, what he's going to be doing next year, which is music. It's just fantastic. And with any luck, we'll get to talk to him in less than a year's time. I hope See so. How he's doing again? Here's hoping. Well, there you have it. We hope we've inspired you. And thank you for listening. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media.